Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pages of HR. I'm your host, Bianca Heron, lead editor at HR Daily Advisor. This podcast provides insightful conversations about HR-related books with the writers who create them. By the end of these conversations, we hope that you'll have actionable insights for your business, best practices to tap, and new information to ponder. In last month's episode, I was joined by Michael Bach, author of Alphabet Soup, The Essential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion at Work. Listen in as we continue our discussion on what it means to create an LGBTQ2 plus inclusive workplace, the value of a code of conduct in the workplace, and so much more. Enjoy. One of the other key points of the book that you talk about is how to create and properly enforce a code of conduct. Does that tie into creating a safe space? It does. Yeah. Code of conducts are really important. So they're really important in that they establish expectations. So they are an indicator of what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is not. And it's important to have a, a code of conduct that is inclusive, uses in, you know, inclusive language that speaks exactly to what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is not. And then becomes the challenging part, and that is the enforcement. And that's where the code of conduct isn't important because it's only as valuable as the paper it's printed on. And you can say to people, here's the code of conduct, follow it. But you're not able to articulate in your con- in your code of conduct every potential variable and situation that may occur. And so people will do their best to act according to the code of conduct but issues will come up that are, they're the gray area, the stuff between the lines that they think, well, I wasn't being disrespectful. I'll give you an example, and it's, it might seem a bit out there, but I believe it or not, I've had to deal with it. I had one client once who someone had filed a complaint because another colleague used the term fat to describe themselves. And this person who filed the complaint found that term triggering. Now, the word fat is kind of everywhere in our society, and it can be used to be body shaming. How in the heck would you ever get that example into your code of conduct? You can't. So the challenge is how do you enforce that code of conduct? And this is where I talk about in the book that you need to have a zero tolerance policy-ish. It is so rare that discriminatory behavior is black and white, pardon the expression, where it's so clean cut, you know, where I say to you, I'm firing you because you're black. How often does that happen, right? Those situations are very rare. I don't have a percentage, but for sake of argument, let's say it's 10%. That means that 90% of issues that come across as discriminatory, uh, oppressive, um, et cetera, are in that gray area. And I'm a firm believer that we should be allowing people the opportunity to improve, to learn, to grow, and not just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So um, as an example, if someone, let's say that I am male presenting, but let's, for sake of argument, let's say that I use the pronoun she, her, and someone misgenders me. Should that person be fired? 
potentially by the code of conduct, they should be. But truly, that is a minor infraction. So the ideal thing to do is to sit down with the person and say, okay, so you continue to misgender me. Here's why that's a problem. Can you learn from this? If the person learns, they improve their behavior, they change, great. If they don't, that's when we say, okay, you know, you continue to be transphobic, you're out. Code of conducts are important, but they're only one tool in the toolbox. And they have to be used in conjunction with other aspects of creating an inclusive environment. I love that. And that's actually what I was thinking about uh, in my hair with hearing you speak about this. Yes, have a code of conduct. We can't include everything in it. Uh, have a, perhaps a general one, but also in tandem with that, in conjunction with that, maybe there's training that goes yes. along with this. Maybe there's communication within the office where we are telling our coworkers and our peers, like, yes, I may be a female, uh, but, you know, I identify as a man and my pronouns are, are he and him, you know, and all of these things. And then, as you said, if people show themselves to be transphobic or homophobic or whatever it is, okay, now, now there's some action that needs to be taken because you're continuing to be who you are. Training and education is so critically important because we can't just expect people to get it. We can't, you know, people say, oh, well, it's 2022. Everyone gets it. Nonsense. That's not true. Why would everyone just magically get it? Because it's a particular year. We have to educate people on what is expected of them. You know, how do you not read between the lines with the code of conduct? And what does it mean to create inclusive spaces? The frustrating point for me around code of conducts and zero tolerance policies is where employers will say, oh, yeah, I know he did that, but, you know, he's a really great performer or he brings a lot of business into this organization or whatever. And we start to make excuses because of someone and their ability to generate revenue. And that's where the, the zero tolerance policy has to be enforced to say, yeah, that actually doesn't matter if he's a great performer. He's creating a toxic workplace. And as long as the work has been done to make sure that person understands why their, their behavior is inappropriate and they've been given the opportunity to improve, then that's when we enforce that zero tolerance policy and, and part ways. Absolutely, absolutely, wow. Uh, you also talk about in a book, um, how to grab a piece of the pink dollar, uh, which is worth more than a one million, one trillion dollar dollars, excuse me, excitement annually in Canada and the U.S. alone. Can you talk about that and, and what that means? Yeah, we, we we talk about this a lot is the the disposable income. There used to be a, a term used DINK, D-I-N-K, double income, no kids, which a lot of uh, LGBTQ2 plus people were. And the reality is that there is a lot of disposable income within the community. And this is a, gen I wanna be very clear, this is a sweeping generalization. Not all LGBTQ2 plus people are wealthy. There are lots of, of people within the community who are middle class, uh, who live below the poverty line, but there is still, uh, there's uh, estimates done that, that show that the, 
um, income potential or GDP of the LGBTQ2 plus communities in North America is over a trillion dollars. That uh, rivals and in fact exceeds other communities, including the African American communities, Latinx Hispanic communities, et cetera. So there's a lot of desire for companies to get a piece of that, to have those have those pink dollars, as we call them, flowing into their organizations. And it's more than just putting up a, you know, a, a rainbow logo on LinkedIn in June. There's work that needs to be done to make sure that you've got, an, you're putting your best foot forward, as the saying would go. So first of all, you got to make sure you're, you have your house in order. Policies and procedures, you know, do you have an employee resource group for the LGBTQ2 plus communities? Um, do you have out executives in your organization? Uh, are you recruiting within communities? Do you support different community organizations? You know, you have to look at this very holistically to make sure that you are looking at it holistically over everything your organization does. And Getting the pink dollar, bringing in the pink dollar can be things like attracting LGBTQ2 plus students to your college or university. It can be about attracting shoppers to your store. So as an example, if I go to a store and I see a rainbow sticker in the door, that suggests to me that that space is safe and that I will be welcomed as a shopper, particularly if I'm holding my husband's hand and that I'm not going to experience homophobia in the store. And that's it, right? That's part of attracting that pink dollar. So you can't just put up the rainbow sticker and hope for the best. You've got to make sure that it's an environment where I'm not going to be discriminated against. A safe space. A safe space. And that's by staff and other customers. So if you know I'm in the store and someone calls me a pejorative term, uh, how is the store going to respond? How is the manager going to respond if it's another customer or if it's a staff person? There's a lot of pieces to attracting that pink dollar. Marketing is one of them. Traction and retention, community support. It's not simple. And I think that's the one thing I would advise your listeners is be careful about just throwing up the rainbow flag and, and thinking, oh, we're going to attract a lot of of LGBTQ2 plus customers. And I'll give you an example of a client I worked with. I won't say their name. They're a large retail organization and they wanted to get a piece of the Latin Hispanic market in the United States. It's worth billions of dollars. And their typical customer is very middle income earner, low middle income earner. Anyway, so they decided they were gonna open a whole bunch of stores in particularly Latinx, Hispanic communities. Um, they put out advertising in Spanish. They did all these things. And on day one, they opened the door and no one in the store spoke Spanish. And the community started asking a lot of questions. Like, do you have an employee resource group? Uh, do you have any uh, Latinx, Hispanic executives? What community organizations are you supporting? And it, it blew up in their face. It cost them millions of dollars because they looked at that community with, with dollar signs in their eyes. 
and they didn't think holistically about making sure that they were truly an inclusive space. And that's the same thing as it relates to trying to get a piece of the pink dollar. You've got to do the work. And that's in general with anything. You've got to do the work. Absolutely. You've given, of course, so many great points here today, Michael. If you had to suggest or name one or two more uh, of the biggest key things you hope readers take away from the book, what would those be? I hope they would take away a, a zest for learning, understanding that this is a constantly evolving conversation and that you're not going to get to the end of the book and be the expert in all things LGBTQ2+. Because as we are speaking, something changed. You know, you have to have that constant desire to learn and an openness. And the other thing I would say is I would encourage people to figure out how to be active allies. And I talk about this a lot in the book. It's beyond just saying I'm an ally. Going to pride doesn't make you an ally. Watching Will and Grace didn't make you an ally. Being an active ally, and I, I differentiate between armchair ally and active ally. Being an active ally means you, you're active, you participate. You are willing to spend your, your privilege and your social capital to create inclusive spaces for others. And that's really one of the two objectives of the book was to encourage people to participate. And I'm specifically speaking about straight and cisgender people, but also members of the LGBTQ2 plus communities as it relates to this intersectional conversation. You know, I, as a white man, am an ally of queer people of color, of trans folk, of other members of the community that do not experience the privilege that I do. But allyship is about activeness and it's about, you know, really doing something to help create more inclusive spaces. And I, you know, there's lots in there that people can read about of how to do that. But I would say those are the two things, that openness to learning and that encouragement to be active in your participation. I love that. I love that. Two, two great things as well. I've got one more question for you, Michael, but before I give that to you, is there anything else that you'd like to add or talk about? I would say that we are at a, a crossroads in this conversation around sexuality and gender that we as a society need to grapple with. This is a very complex, multi-layered conversation. And the only thing I ask of people is an openness to being open to the learning to being open to the conversation, to not shutting something down just because you don't understand it. That's really what I think will help us uh, be successful in reaching that elusive goal of inclusion, is that openness and willing to be open. Absolutely, absolutely, I love that, Michael. My final question for you, what does your next chapter look like? Oh, girl. Um, well, I'm working on another book. Uh, yeah, I've already, I've started writing another book. These books come up to me. It's interesting you asked me this question earlier. Books to me kind of arrive in my brain 
relatively fully formed. And, you know, when I wrote my first book, Birds of All Feathers, I, I was really trying to help entrepreneurs, small employers, managers kind of get their brains around inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. And then I, I wrote Alphabet Soup because I really started hearing the same questions over about sexuality and gender. My new book is on privilege and inclusive leadership and not white privilege because of course everyone has heard me say privilege heard white privilege privilege in every form and it's it connects to why this came up is because i've been talking so much about allyship and and realizing that people need to understand that in order to be allies you have to spend your privilege or using your privilege. and it's privilege like you and i are recording this podcast thanks to the the high-speed internet, the wonderful World Wide Web, but 13 million Americans do not have access to high-speed internet, whether or not they can afford it. They just don't have access to it. And the past three plus years, we have been all about high-speed internet as everyone's been working from home. That's a privilege. Having access to that is a privilege. There are lots of forms of privileges and, and this book, um, sort of came to me and I thought this is what we need to understand is how we use that privilege to the advantage of others. So the next chapter for me is literally a chapter that I'm focused on uh, on a new book. I love that. Do you have any socials that our listeners can follow you on? They can find me on all of the social media platforms. I am at the Michael Bach, B-A-C-H. They can also go to my website at michaelbach.com and sign up for my newsletter, learn about my books. All the stuff that is me is there. Awesome. Awesome. Michael, again, thank you so much for being here today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in as always. And remember, you can always follow us on Twitter at HR Pages. And we are also now available on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible. Again, I'm Bianca Heron. Join us next time when we turn the page.